you recall from last week, however you felt about the game, <laughs> uh, we talked about, we reached the crescendo of Paul's letter where Paul was telling us that he was a fan for Christ. And if you remember the way I kind of contextualized it, it was sort of his rallying cry, okay, let's go on to victory, to move towards the end of this letter to the Philippians. But as we rejoin this letter, it, you know how sometimes you can get ahead of steam and you can be go, okay, let's go, and you run ahead and then you never look to see if anyone's behind you following? This is where Paul makes sure that he's left no one behind, that we are following him. It's sort of a, his recalibration to make sure that we're all going in the same direction. And so in that spirit of continuing on, as Paul has given us the high point of this letter, but now turns back to make sure that we're all focused and moving in the same direction, I invite you to hear from Philippians chapter 3, starting with verse 17. Join with others, Paul writes, in following my example, brothers and sisters, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will become like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Eudia and I plead with Sidiketh to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if you've been keeping up of late. Uh, we actually had a book discussion about it, but there's been a, a, a renewed interest or debate about the reality of hell. Uh, we had a book discussion about one of the books that kind of started this off, but there's been a, a huge cultural conversation outside the church, but especially within the church of, uh, the, does hell exist? How do we understand hell? Have we mischaracterized hell? Um, in all the fire and brimstone sermons, is it the best idea to scare the hell out of people so that they get into heaven? And, you know, in the midst of that debate, there's been some pretty, pretty interesting things that have been said. And one of the things that's really been put out there, even within the church, is perhaps, you know, we've overblown it and perhaps there is no hell. Well, in the midst of that debate, if you're not familiar with it, that conversation, if it's come up in your circles, we come to a point in this letter to the Philippians where it seems pretty clear to me, at least, that Paul believes in hell. Paul speaks, again, as bluntly as we saw last week in the midst of chapter 3 when he spoke of those dogs, those evil mutilators of the flesh. Paul says many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says their destiny is destruction. In this this moment of reorientation to make sure that everyone's heading in the same, the same direction, Paul puts out there that, once again, any destination, any place we're heading that's other than the cross of Christ is a dead end. It will get us nowhere. Their destiny is destruction. Paul isn't just talking about death. He's talking about hell because the word destruction that he uses here is the same word that Jesus used to describe the landscape of hell. When he spoke of this same idea of dead ends, to describe, it's a word used to describe what an eternity of death would be like. 
So right from the outset in making sure that everyone's following him, Paul recalibrates by saying, look, going any other direction is hell. It's a dead end. It's destruction. And so you can imagine for those of us perhaps who maybe were beginning to follow Paul, who maybe our eyes can go somewhere else, we, we, we perk up when we hear that. Anytime we say that word, we all seem to react, hell, what do we do? And Paul gives indicators for us as we hear this of how do we know that we're heading in the wrong direction? How can we, what are the signs that we ought to be mindful of that we're not going towards the cross of Christ? And he, he throws out a fascinating phrase. Their destiny is destruction. And then he writes, their God is their stomach. Their God is their stomach. Paul says an indicator that you are moving in the wrong direction, that we are moving in the wrong direction, is when our desires, our desires and our goals become driven, become dictated by our appetites. And at first that may not seem like that's such a bad thing. I mean, doesn't God give us these appetites that we have? And what Paul is trying to draw out, helping us to see, and he's done this at several places in this letter, is that the blessings of this life, all the good things that we receive and we should celebrate and we praise God for, all of the good things that we receive and praise the Lord for, food and drink, work and play, beauty and humor, they're not meant to be ends in and of themselves. They are given to us. They are poured into our lives as a means of nurturing us, strengthening us, encouraging us, and focusing us in our relationship with God and with each other. When Paul says their stomach is their God, he's saying that our stomach becomes our God when we invert things, when we put things in the wrong order, when we worship what fills us, when we worship whatever brings us satisfaction and pleasure. If you will, we are inverting things. Our God is our stomach when we are not eating to live, but instead we live to eat. Instead of living to eat, we eat to live. Or, sorry, reverse that. Instead of eating to live, we live to eat. It's this idea of we become consumers. Consumers taking in just for the sake of taking in. When our belly has become our God, our appetites dictate what we eat. They dictate what we drink. They dictate what we consume, regardless of the health consequences, whether they're physical consequences, mental consequences, emotional consequences, or spiritual consequences. You see... Paul wants us to understand when we invert it, we turn the very things that God has made blessings into curses. They become curses because the problem with worshiping your stomach is that it never stays full. You ever think about that? I mean, it's an interesting thing. We think about our actual stomach. The stomach can get full, but if you know about basic anatomy, the stomach never stays full. It just empties itself. And so it goes on, getting full, not being full. And this continues, and if you simply were, we were simply to rely on our stomachs, we would be continually insatiable. And that's what happens beyond the physicality of our anatomy in our relationship with God. Apart from God, worshiping our appetites can only give us temporary satisfaction. And let's call it, it gives us satisfaction, but that satisfaction is temporary. Yes, we have moments of bliss. We have moments of enjoyment. We have moments where life is full and we can say it out loud. But our lives apart from God never stay full. And the irony of what Paul is really getting at in this short, simple phrase that there's God is their stomach is that in this perpetual need to be full, continually trying to be full apart from God, before we know it, we become slaves 
to our own desires. When we worship our own appetites, beloved, we are living not to adore and honor God. We are chasing after our own self-indulgences. We are chasing after our own sensual gratifications. And what happens is our lives exist. They become trapped in a recurring state of discontentment. Where again, we live to eat rather than eating to live, where again, we exist for pleasure rather than experiencing the pleasure of existing, of being alive. And there's a profound difference in those two experiences. When your belly is your God, Paul writes, your mind is on earthly things. With these words, Paul is clarifying that the issue is not individual sins. So if in the midst of this, we're starting to go gluttony, greed, we're, we're, hit, we're close to the mark, but we're not hitting the target. Paul's not talking about individual sins. He's talking that the issue is about going in the wrong direction. It's about one's orientation, one's entire way of being. When Paul writes, their mind is on earthly things, he's referring to what we used in the church, an old school world, church word called worldliness. Worldliness is worshiping the here and now. Worldliness is worshiping the here and now without consideration of the future. It is being so fixated on what is seen that one misses or ignores what, or more profoundly, who lies beyond that which is seen, the living God. And the irony of worldliness, because it sounds worldliness bigger, vast, the irony of worldliness is that it is in fact a narrowing of our vision. The irony of worldliness is it's actually a shrinking of our desires. The irony of worldliness is it's actually a lessening of our appetites rather than an expansion of them. Because it's allowing our thinking and our living to become captive to a lesser joy than the real and true joy that is only found in treasuring God and his glory in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul, the, the, most, prof, the most significant orientation is acknowledging, don't settle for less. Don't, don't settle for your stomach to be your God. For us this morning, as we hear these words, we should take pause. We should take pause when we hear Paul speak of hell. We should take pause when we hear of Paul speak of how easy it is for us to become trapped by our own desires. How do we test? How do we know? How do we gauge our orientation? How do we see if we're heading in the wrong direction? How do we discern if our orientation is worldly? Beloved, I ask you, I ask us, how do we engage our lives? How do we engage our lives? Do we love the world but use the world? Or do we love the world and use the Lord? Hear that again. Do we love the Lord but use the world, or do we love the world and use the Lord? The Puritans actually came up with that little gut check test. Do we appreciate all the blessings that God gives us in this world, but prefer the Lord over all of those things? Do we appreciate all the blessings that God gives, but prefer the Lord over all of those things, or do we love all the blessings of this world and use the Lord to get them? Put it another way, think of what you most treasure in your life. Take a moment and think about what you most treasure in your life, even maybe your top five. What are the things you most treasure, savor, cherish in your life? Is that, is your treasure your God? Is it what you worship? 
Is what you treasure, has it become your God? Is it what you worship and live for? Or is God your treasure? Are you choosing? Are you treasuring the gifts of this life more than the giver? It's very easy to do. It's very easy for us to treasure the things that are passing away more than the one who will never, ever pass away. And that is why Paul says, be careful. Be careful of the enemies of the cross of Christ. Be careful of those who God is their stomach. Be careful that that doesn't happen to you. Life is a gift. Forgiveness is a gift. Grace is a gift. Pastor Joe eloquently shared at the beginning of this service, hearkening Paul in another letter, love is a gift, but we must receive such gifts. And receiving such gifts, Paul writes, means embracing the one who gives them. Another way to put this, my brothers and sisters in Christ, another way to think about it, to just stir us, is we become our choices. We become our choices. That's in many ways the very definition of character, isn't it? The more we choose something, the more we become that something. The person that we encounter in our lives who's an angry person, angry all the time, the person that we encounter in our lives who's a complaining person, a person who's complaining all the time about everything, the person we encounter in our lives who is spiteful, who just seems to spew bile and hatred, they are not born that way. They become that person through the choices that they make. Pastor Joe hearkened from 1 Corinthians about love. Notice in that, that, that writing of love that Paul gives, it's about the choice to love. That love is a choice. We become the very characteristics of love when we choose to engage love as God gives it to us. We become what we choose. We become our choices. And Paul is writing, the more that we choose the cross, the more we become like Christ. The more we experience the power of his resurrection. But the more we choose ourselves, the more we seek salvation and contentment in the things of this world, the more we become slaves to such things. And the more we deny the cross, the more we become enemies to its power, and the more we find ourselves in hell. Now, Worldliness is soul-destroying. It's soul-destroying. It leads to hell on earth because it tricks our hearts into seeking satisfaction in that which can never satisfy us. And what it does in getting us into that place is it slowly strangles out the experience of being fully alive to God. And the end result, Paul writes, is always the same. Their glory is in their shame. Wow. Wow, we can hear this, and for some of us it speaks to where we are, but for others of us we can hear this. It's like when we do talk about hell, some of us can go, well, I'm glad I'm not going there. Ho, ho, ho for those other people. And yet Paul, when he speaks of hell, when he speaks of these very, very gut-checking things, these things that rock us, Paul, when he begins to talk about the enemies of the cross, those are harsh words. Paul, when he writes of enemies of the cross and their destination of death, he says, I tell you this with tears. Paul is so distressed by those who forsake, forsake or lose the gift of, that God offers them that he weeps for them. He doesn't just weep for where they're going to end up. He weeps for the hell they are living in now, for the suffering of their insecurity, for the slavery of the addiction that surrounds them. This isn't just a belief or doctrine in Paul's head when we talk of hell. This isn't just a belief or doctrine in his head. He is feeling this in his heart. 
Paul, in this moment, in this letter, has the heart of Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Jesus looked out over the city of Jerusalem? Do you remember that moment? Do you remember that Jesus looked out over a city of people who had rejected God's ways, who, were, who would become enemies of the cross? He looked at a city of people who would soon scream for his crucifixion. And as he surveyed that scene, the hell that their lives were, the hell that their lives would become on that day, when they rejected him, he wept. And Paul now, like Christ, looks over the whole city of Philippi, the whole empire of Rome, and as he considers those who are enemies of the cross, it moves him to tears. It moves him to tears. I wonder, I wonder. We seldom speak as forcefully as Paul does here. We seldom speak as forcefully as Paul does here. And for many of us, we would probably accuse him, maybe not out loud, of being a little intolerant, politically incorrect. You know, you get more flies with honey rather than vinegar. And our, our rationale would be, well, we're just not as harsh as Paul because we want to be more loving. And my question is, as we seldom speak as forcefully as Paul does here, is the reason why we speak not as forcefully as Paul does because we love our neighbors more than he did? Or is it because we love them less? And if we do speak forcefully, some of us may be ready to say, man, let me tell you, I, t I give it to people every time. I let them know. I let them know. Such to be consigned to the flames. Ho, 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 you better be careful. You better watch. I let them know. If we do speak forcefully, do we speak with the same force of compassion that Paul has here? When we talk to others about the seriousness of the choices that they are making, the urgency of the gospel and the reality of hell, is it often not with an air of superiority and judgment? Is that not the stereotype that many have when we speak of such serious and important things? And yet Paul here, when he talks about the reality of hell, the seriousness of the choice before the Philippians, before us, he speaks of it without smugness, without arrogance. He isn't trying to use scare tactics here. All he has is tears. Beloved, do we ever tear up? People around us, all around us, are trying to secure their lives. They're, we see them. They're trying to secure their lives, and they're trying to secure the lives of their loved ones through all sorts of quick fixes, self-help formulas, golden but empty idols. We see it. You know, you are thinking right now of people around you who you know are living this way. Their God is their stomach. Their destiny is destruction. They are chasing after the wind, becoming what they worship, losing themselves and their souls, and they are living in hell now. Does that get to us? Where are our tears? People around us, all around us are dying. People around us in our lives, people coming to your mind right now have shared with you in a moment of intimacy their fear of dying. And they are so afraid, so many of us that are around us are so afraid of dying that in a tragic bit of irony, they are literally killing themselves in order to avoid or deny the fact that someday they will die. The cross is not a comfort for them. The cross at best is a piece of jewelry. Does that get to us? Or are we so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good? Now, most of us have probably heard that the other way. We're so heavenly-minded, we're no earthly good. But the reverse is really the point. 
If we're so rooted in accepting the way things are, if we are so complacent and just that's just the way it is, that's just the, if we just buy into the way things appear, that we've lost our sense of urgency, our sense of expectation, if we've lost the ability to have tears, then, beloved, we've become part of the problem and not part of the solution. If we find ourselves sitting here today just content to survive, just, you know, just let me my last breath just to survive rather than living. If we're willing to settle for what we can get, as many of us often do in our lives, rather than striving for what we can give, then we have become domesticated. We have become worldly. Our head may be in the clouds. Oh, we may love to talk about heaven. Our head may be in the clouds. We may think that in all of our talk of heaven, we've transcended the cares of this world. But the truth is, we're just living in denial. And as Paul writes, if that is where we are, our glory is in our shame. Our glory is in our shame. We are closer to hell than we realize. And that's why Paul writes, you can almost sense it, the, I, you can feel it as he would rewrite these words, but our citizenship is in heaven. The Philippians, it's interesting, would have heard these words, this, this statement, our citizenship is in heaven. The Philippians would have heard this differently than we hear it. You know, we hear Paul write, our citizenship is in heaven, and we hear this and immediately think about the future. We think about going to heaven. We think about one day there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. One day all of our fears and our needs will be no more. One day this will happen and we'll go there. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. That's not what he's talking about. And that's not what the Philippians would have heard or that what they would have thought as they listened to this letter. If you don't know much about Philippi, Philippi, 100 years, be 100 years before Paul even visited Philippi, one of the greatest battles in Roman history took place there. After the death of Julius Caesar, there was a brief civil war. And in the, the, the victory that ended that brief civil war took place at Philippi, this decisive battle. And the two victorious generals at Philippi, Antony and Octavius, Octavius who would later name himself, become Augustus Caesar. And, and to Antony and Octavius, winning the battle, ending the civil war, had a problem. They were in a bind with the war actually being over. Because, you see, at the end of this brief civil war, they had a whole lot of soldiers Whole lot of soldiers there in northern Greece with nothing to do. And they didn't suddenly want to bring thousands of soldiers back home to Rome because that would have been dangerous. It would have been dangerous to have such an influx of, of soldiers suddenly take up residence in a rather unstable and overcrowded capital city. And so in a stroke of brilliance, Antony and Octavius, their solution was to give the soldiers who had fought the land in Philippi. And not only to give them the land in Philippi, but with it to grant them Roman citizenship which was quite a perk. And so Philippi became a colony of the Roman Empire. And once this colony was established, it was beautiful. When other battles took place, other veterans from battles, they were sent to Philippi. That was the veteran retirement community. And you didn't just get to go live there, you gained your citizenship by living in the colony of Philippi. When Paul arrived on the scene, the Philippian colonists were proud of their citizenship. This was their town, their home. They worked hard to order their civic life, the life of their city, so that it matched the way things were done in Rome. So if someone in Philippi said, we are citizens of Rome, our citizenship is in Rome, they wouldn't mean we are citizens of Rome, so we're looking forward to going to live there, to live in Rome. A colony works the other way around. 
What they would have said when they said, we are citizens of Rome, our citizenship is in Rome, their meaning would have been the task of a Roman citizen in Philippi was to bring Roman culture, Roman ways, Roman rule to Philippi, to expand Roman influence where they were stationed. The residents of Philippi were to make their city an outpost of Rome. Their charge as citizens, if you will, was to bring Rome to Philippi. So when Paul writes, but our citizenship is in heaven, join with others in following my example, he is telling them, he is telling us not to think about going to heaven, but to follow his example, the example when he came upon them as he sits now, even still in a Roman prison, of bringing heaven to earth. And so they wouldn't have heard Paul's words as an escape clause. They wouldn't have heard Paul's words as some kind of invitation to an eternal vacation. They wouldn't have thought about the task, they would have thought and understood the task was making their church a colony, an outpost of heaven on earth. And beloved, however imperfect we are, however imperfect we are, the local church has always been intended when it is planted to be a colony, an outpost of heaven on earth. For people living with pride as part of the Roman Empire, Paul is saying, realize that this is not your true home. Realize that you, in fact, are living abroad, but as you are living abroad, don't deny your real citizenship, Paul writes. The word citizenship that Paul uses here is the same word from the first chapter, the beginning of the letter, when Paul beckons the Philippians to only live as citizens worthy of the gospel. They exist as part of the Roman Empire. Caesar may have claimed godhood. The Roman Empire may lay claim to the world. The ways of Rome may rule the world for now, but Paul is saying like all empires of humanity, she will be eclipsed by the kingdom of Christ. Therefore, be a colony of heaven. Be a colony and outpost of the kingdom. Paul is stressing that our character and our conduct ought to bear witness to the truth, love, and grace of Jesus to bring his kingdom to where we are living, to make as we pray it on earth as it is in heaven. What a, what a shift. What a reorientation. How do we seek this together? How, how do we stay focused in this way and, and live into this word of Paul and not become disoriented? Not go in a wrong direction that's a dead end. Paul says, seek direction. Take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Paul is reminding us that the Christian life is not meant to be lived solo. We are partners in the gospel. We need each other. We are part of a community. It's why God draws us together. We need faithful examples to follow who are satisfied. Faithful examples who are not rich and famous. Faithful examples who haven't arrived in terms of the world standards. But faithful examples who are satisfied in Christ. Whose hope is fully in the resurrection to come and who are pursuing the values of God's kingdom here and now. Who are you following? Who are your examples? Where do you see Jesus with skin? And as followers of Christ, the inverse is also true, Paul is implying, that we might, might not just are supposed to follow those who are faithful examples of heaven on earth, of Christ, but we also must go before and come alongside others to set an example of walking by faith, of living according to the grace that we've been given through Christ. And that ability to both follow and to lead is by us coming together, ironing, sharpening iron, being drawn together and held together by the Spirit of Christ. And so Paul writes to the Philippians, telling them, 
Seek direction. Look for others. Take note of those who live according to the pattern we've given you. But Paul tells them, be homesick. Eagerly await your Savior. Place your trust in Jesus Christ. In both leading and following others, beloved, Christ is the one whose life, death, and resurrection provides the pattern for our lives. When Paul says, look for those who live according to the pattern we gave you, the pattern is the person of Christ. In the language of the Christian faith, the term for this sort of life is cruciform. The word cruciform. Cruciform means literally cross-shaped. And it actually is a word you'll hear more often used in architecture. Because the earlier churches were built in the shape of a cross. They were built cruciform. In the history of Western Christianity, if you've ever gone and looked at the more popular cathedrals, the older churches, in the history of Western Christianity, it became quite popular to build churches in the shape of a cross. Well, Paul is saying, I want you to build your life in the shape of the cross. Allow your life by the power of the Spirit that is at work within you to be shaped by the cross. And we've heard him articulate what a cruciform life looks like. A cruciform life is a life shaped by selfless sacrifice. A cruciform life is a life where we're not seeking our own interests, but where we're caring for others more than we care for ourselves. A cruciform life, as again, Pastor Joe shared for us, the continuity between Paul's writing is the kind of love that he invokes in chapter 13. As Paul writes here, a cruciform life is standing firm in the Lord. And this idea of standing firm is, is not this sense of being stationary, but standing firm means rem, stay headed in the right direction, committed to Christ and to each other, committed together, stand firm together to moving forward in the kingdom. And for us, if this is just too heady, Paul, as, the, as he gets to the end of his letter, as always gives us a real-life example He's been talking about what it looks like, and then he gets to brass tacks with the people of Philippi. When he brings to our attention the real-life situation of Yodia and Syndicate. Two women who are in a big, big fight. And we don't know what the conflict was between these two women. We don't know what it was. But whatever it was, we do know this. Whatever conflict was going on between these two women, it had gone on long enough that news of the conflict had spread all the way from Philippi to where Paul was in Rome. We don't know what they were fighting about, but we know this, that it was a big enough of an issue that Paul addresses it publicly as he calls out these two women by name and in the letter tells them to get over it and agree in the Lord. Are you like me? Do you ever stop and go, what was that like? What happened when Paul, they read that letter out loud for the first time? What, 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 I mean, I, I go here. What was that like? I mean, at that moment when he calls them out by name, did everyone in, like, kind of look back, go, you know, kind of do the subtle. Do you, do, you, do you picture in your mind that these two women, probably on opposite sides of the room, turned and looked at each other in that moment? Or do you think that they both were like. I mean, I know that that's hard for us to relate to because, you know, the, the Philippian church was small. They had just one service, so you couldn't go to the second service in order to avoid someone you weren't getting along with. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm talking about, right? They were in the same room. I mean, it was really small. And what's interesting to me more, more than anything else is that this conflict is not private. So for us so often in the church, and this, this is so, again, we gotta, we've got it inverted. We have conflict in the church, and more often than not, people will come and let me know about conflict, but, but they don't, but, well, I, I, but I'm not supposed to get involved. That's private. 
That's my job. Except, of course, when the conflict's about me. <laughs> What's interesting about this letter is that the conflict for this church is not private. Paul calls it out not to shame or embarrass these women per se, but he's calling it out. Notice what, where he goes here. This isn't private. This conflict affects the whole community. It affects the whole body, and it's reflected in the fact that Paul specifically doesn't just address them, but asks for someone in the community, someone who he refers to as the true companion, to get involved and act as a mediator between these two women and help bring reconciliation. We need to hear that. Because often for us in the church, and this is also an opportunity for our witness that has gone the other way, when we have conflict in the church, we leave. We leave. And we don't even tell anyone that we're leaving. We just disappear. And Paul's model here is, this is the most important time for us to witness that we are citizens of heaven. We engage this differently. Work it out, he says to the two women. But he says, true companion, get in there. Get these women together. Get them to talk to each other. Get them to work this out. Beloved, we need more of that in our church. The church worldwide and the church here at Grace, we need people who are willing to have that kind of courage in Christ. And if, we're, we, if, we, if we think, well, boy, that's real easy for Paul to say, get in there, work it out. Get in there, help them out. Paul doesn't just leave them hanging without telling them how to work it out. Do you see that here? It's helpful for us, too. Paul teaches us how to resolve conflict. Notice what he says. He tells them how to resolve this dispute. He says that Yodia and Syndicath, their names are in the book of life. We might just glaze over that, but he specifically points that out. What's the book of life? Throughout Scripture, we're told about a book, a book that God keeps and authors. And in this book, Scripture comes again and again referring to that God writes in this book the names of all those who will enter his kingdom and enjoy eternal life. And Paul says, these women, their names are in the book of life. He's saying it to them and he's saying it to the community. What he's saying is, these women who think they're divorced from each other, Paul reminds them that their true unity is found in their salvation in Christ. They won't be in the same room together, but their names are probably next to each other on the book of life. These women are acting as if their relationship is irre irre irrevocably broken. And Paul is reminding them that they have already been reconciled in Christ. What Paul is saying to these two women and to the community at large, and it's a little thing, but it makes a big difference. What he is saying is to persist in this dispute, to refuse to love each other, to refuse to work it out, to reject their agreement in the Lord is to deny their citizenship. It is to choose, if I may be so blunt, to live in hell rather than to bring heaven to earth. This is unacceptable, Paul writes. It's unacceptable for them, and it's unacceptable for the community as a whole. The church should be the one place where hell gets no audience, where hell has no foothold. And yet many of us in this room know, many of us have unfortunately experienced more of hell in church than we have of heaven. Paul beckons us, if we've experienced that kind of disorientation, to follow him and to follow others like him who conform to the way of the cross. And Paul, in saying this, goes beyond the crosses that we hang on our walls or around our necks. He invokes more than the cross-shaped, cross-centric buildings where we gather for worship. Paul is saying, follow Christ. 
And Paul, throughout this letter, has made it clear that following Jesus means that we don't quite fit in this world. But Paul has also made it clear that living for the kingdom of God doesn't mean that our goal is to escape. Instead, Paul asks us again and again to pause and consider where our truest beliefs and loyalties belong. Do our truest loyalties and beliefs belong to the world, to the empire, to the belly, to the ego? Or are our true loyalties and beliefs is our hope and trust in nothing less than Jesus Christ's righteousness? Our citizenship, Paul reminds us, is in heaven. What is heaven? Heaven is our true home. It is our living relationship, our eternal destiny in Jesus Christ. In the first part of this letter, Paul has spent a great time, deal of time sharing about what this eternal life in Christ is like. And now, towards the end, he wants to hone in on the fact that the reality of heaven ought to impact the way you and I live in the world as Christians. Our destiny in Christ is what our redeemed lives here and now are preparing us for. We've been rescued and set apart by, as God's people for a reason. And maybe, in hearing Paul's words throughout this entire letter, maybe we've, the reason why we gather, the reason why we, we come together as a church and we seem to have lowered our expectations as Christians, maybe the reason why we've lowered our expectations as Christians and as the church isn't so much because of the attacks of this world, the secularization of society. Maybe the reason why we're lowering our expectations as Christians and as the church is because we've settled. We've settled down and invested so much in things that don't matter. So much that we've forgotten where our true home is. Well, home, as they say, is where the heart is. And God's heart seems to be in this world. He brought his heart. He brought heaven to earth when he gave us his one and only son. If we would seek after heaven, we must follow Jesus. And if heaven is being in Christ, if heaven is being like Christ, and if Christ gave his life for all creation, then maybe our heart belongs to this world too. Where is heaven? It's being in this world, but not of this world. Where is heaven? It is being salt and light, a city on the hill, a colony of the kingdom. Where is heaven? It is doing unto Jesus by doing unto the least of these. Where is heaven? It is going where Jesus is so that where he is, we may also be. Beloved, we bring heaven to earth when we cherish the cross to such a degree that we no longer fear for our own death, but instead we fear for the death of others. We become a colony of the kingdom, an outpost of salvation, when together we show a heavenly compassion for our community. When we don't judge and condemn, but instead tearfully embrace, forgive and be forgiven, and introduce our neighbor not to an ethereal place in the heavenlies, but to a relationship that will change their lives. Bringing heaven to earth is bringing Jesus into this world. Lives are at stake. If we would truly occupy the gospel, then beloved, then citizens of heaven, pilgrims of earth, it's time to get moving. Amen?